This is the Thank You 72 podcast brought to you by the Wisconsin Alumni Association. This podcast salutes outstanding Badgers from every one of Wisconsin's 72 counties. Here's your host, Todd Pritchard. America is changing the way it deals with the rest of the world. We called Wapaka County native and former ambassador to Greece and Belarus, Daniel Speckhardt, to get his unique perspective on the fast-changing events of the past few months, including the withdrawal of U.S. troops from northeastern Syria. Yeah, well, that was a real strategic mistake by the United States. More of Speckhardt's insights are coming up. But first, let me introduce you to this amazing alum. Daniel earned his master's degree from UW-Madison's La Follette School of Public Affairs, which opened the door to a distinguished diplomatic and policy career. Mr. Speckhardt's resume is amazing. He served as ambassador to Greece and Belarus, deputy assistant secretary general of NATO, then director of the Iraqi Reconstruction Management Office, and deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Daniel now serves as president and CEO of Lutheran World Relief, IMA World Health. It's a humanitarian organization that seeks to break the cycle of poverty and promote healthier families throughout the world. Mr. Speckhardt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Also joining me for the conversation is Laura Bunn. She's a graduate student at La Follette's Masters of International Public Affairs program. Laura, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. You recently returned from uh, an internship at our embassy in Lisbon, Portugal, right? Yes, that's right. Um, and thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. So, Daniel, let's start with with you. You're from Wapaka County. You were born in Clintonville, correct? That's right. So tell me about your, your childhood, your family. What was it like uh, growing up for you? Well, it was pretty Wisconsin childhood in the sense that my mother was a stay-at-home mom during that period in the 1960s, and uh, my dad started out as a pastor. Uh, my grandfather was a longtime pastor of Clintonville, uh, and my dad went into seminary. But then after being a pastor for a few years, he decided to be a high school teacher of German. I got to live around the state as he moved a little bit. So I started in Clintonville, but then lived in places like Muscaday and New Glarus, southeastern Wisconsin. And then we landed in uh, Wausau for my formative middle school and high school years. So a Green Bay Packer, a fan through and through, and a cheesehead. That's awesome that you're still a cheesehead. We appreciate that. That's great. Did you graduate in Wausau? Is that where you graduated high school? I did. I graduated from Wausau West High School. And uh, one of the formative things during my childhood, though, I would add that because it kind of leads into what we're going to be talking about in terms of international affairs, is my father was a Fulbright uh, exchange uh, teacher in Germany for a year when I was in fifth grade. And they just took us over there and dumped me into a German school without any language training. And uh, I got a healthy dose of what it's like to live in another culture, to learn a different language and see the world from a different perspective. So I think that was kind of an imprint on me for the rest of my life that kind of ended up uh, shaping what I did with my life. That was definitely being thrown into the deep end of the pool, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it sure is. I don't recommend it, but it's a great way to learn a language. So why did you decide to attend UW-Madison? Well, it's a fantastic school, great reputation internationally and nationally. But to be honest with you, I'm sure for a lot of the students coming to Wisconsin, it's also the affordability you know, I have to say one of the great things about uh, public universities is the ability to make it accessible to average people of average means. Uh, I know it's getting tougher. The price of the universities go up. But for the quality that you get at the University of Wisconsin compared to the price you pay, it's just impossible to beat. Yeah, that's very true. 
Laura's got a question here. Yeah, so if someone told you your freshman year that you would have a career in international diplomacy and development, what would have been your reaction? You know, I would have been excited to hear that, but I would have been skeptical. I started out as a freshman in the engineering department uh, because in high school I had actually won a National Science Foundation fellowship and saw the hard sciences as a place to really uh, change the world. But as I got more into it in the university, I started thinking about uh, the softer sciences and how they also uh, end up changing the world. I've always wanted to do something that made a big impact in the world. But I started opening my eyes to some of the different opportunities, which is a great thing about university. You get a chance to look at all the different possibilities and learn from different professors in different academic uh, areas. And so I shifted from engineering to economics, which actually isn't that big of a difference because there's lots of math in both, and really started enjoying my economics training there at the University of Wisconsin as an undergraduate. But I always, because of that experience of having lived overseas, had an interest in what was going on in the world. One of the things I might highlight for folks coming into the university or folks that are there right now is, for me, I always was thinking about how do you get a job after you graduate? And so I wanted to make sure I had a hard skill that allowed me to do that. So loved international affairs, but it's a little bit hard to go straight from an international relations degree into a, a great job unless you're really, really talented and you can ace the foreign service exam or do an internship or a Peace Corps volunteer or something else overseas. So for me, I was thinking about economics as a hard skill and hard science to be able to do something. And what motivated you to enter grad school in public affairs, public policy? Well, I felt that it was important to have a graduate degree to also make myself competitive. And I don't know if some of your other students are like this, that once you're in the school mode, it's a little bit easier to kind of, before you get other responsibilities, children, family, other kinds of things, to kind of continue on the academic track. So it made a lot of sense for me to do that. But I picked uh, La Follette in part because of what I felt I needed, which were some of these skills and sort of turning the academic piece of my economics undergraduate degree and how do you make that practical in the public service sense. And I think the follow does a great job of that in the sense that they really, the Wisconsin idea, this notion that academics is supposed to reinforce public policy and, and there's supposed to be a back and forth between these two centers to ensure that we're serving the state and the citizens is something that I, I got excited about. And so in school, uh, I think the best part about it was you start graduate school, you start working on pragmatic, practical questions, and you can dig your teeth in and then understand how instead of writing a long 30-page paper for your grade, you're actually more focused on what are the policy outcomes based on an evidence-based analysis or analytical rigor. Are there any specific moments that you would say your graduate school experiences and skills really helped you during your career? One of my graduate teachers was a woman named uh, Professor Penniman, a real great thinker, and I think in terms of professors in the field, a leader in, as a woman uh, breaking through some barriers very early years, mid-20th century. I was lucky to study under her, and one of the things she told me was that if you really want to influence policy, follow the money. And that led me during my career to go work at the White House at the Office of Management and Budget. And I, I suspect budget doesn't sound sexy to a lot of students, but the reality is the appropriations and budget processes at state, local, and federal level, if you don't have dollars to support programs and initiatives, you can have great ideas, but they'll usually not be able to be implemented. 
And so she was right in terms of seeing how resources really impact public policy and how those two have to go together. Do you mind talking a little bit more about what originally sparked your interest in international policy and what prompted you to have a career in the State Department and in international development? Sure. As I mentioned, I really started with economics as a base to try to have some hard skills to support me in the international area, but I was interested in it. I had lived overseas as a child, knew I was attracted to the international uh, challenges that are facing the world. So when I the big move for me, the lucky break, I first lucky break I got was, and it was the, uh, the fall at school that gave it to me, by some smart professor put on the wall there a uh, sign that said Presidential Management Fellow Program. And this is a two-year uh, program where the government gives you kind of a executive track training program to kind of build you into the management track. Uh, and they give you a number of opportunities. I was successful, uh, I think the first uh, Wisconsin student to be able to to uh, be in that program. There have been many since. Uh, it was only a few years old at uh, the time I, I joined. But that allowed me to try out some different things at the federal government. One of them was I was able to work you know, for six months over at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And as part of that program, I was able to go to Belize and look at how they can support uh, small business development in their country. That got me really excited. And when I came back, that's when I was able to move over to the budget side at OMB at the White House, uh, and there I was in the International Affairs Division. So I was essentially reviewing international foreign aid, the effectiveness of it, how to improve it, uh, and how to allocate resources toward it. That kind of got me hooked permanently on the international side, and from there I ended up going over to the State Department. That sounds like a really great program and opportunity. Could you talk a little bit more about your career progression from being a presidential management fellow to the State Department and then to your job now? One of the things that I got an opportunity that someone knew the work I was doing invited me to come over to the State Department to work for the Deputy Secretary's Office, where they coordinated all foreign assistance for the U.S. government. And I went over there as an assistant in that office. And after about a year and a half, the director of that office left. I was only 29 at the time. It was a senior executive position, but I convinced the deputy secretary at the time, Larry Eilberger, to give me a chance. And one of the things I'd like to highlight for your students here is these opportunities, you have to have some luck, obviously, as well, but it can be at any level. It doesn't have to be at the deputy secretary of state level. It could be in a local government, state government, somewhere else. But I really encourage students as early as they can to get an opportunity to, turn, to serve as a staff assistant to somebody very senior. Because when you get that chance, when you get to see the world from somebody who is much more senior, you start understanding how decisions are made and what kind of information you need at a more senior level and how you process information. In particular, that they can't handle a 30-page paper that gives them the outline. How do you create executive-level kind of digestible, short, sharp, to-the-point, focused analytics and information, and how do you evaluate all sorts of information coming from all sorts of different angles and interests as you, uh, when, as executives have to do. If you can see that as an aid to an executive, it'll help you then shape your career path in such a way that whether or not you want to aspire to those kind of positions, you'll still understand how to influence public policy making and decision making by preparing the right kind of materials and analysis and in the right form. 
You're listening to the Thank You 72 podcast brought to you by the Wisconsin Alumni Association. Now back to our conversation with Wapaka County native and UW alum, Daniel Speckard. Once again, here's your host, Todd Pritchard, along with La Follette School of Public Affairs graduate student, Laura Bunn. Daniel, your resume reads like a list of the world's most challenging situations over the past 30 years. Uh, You've been a Deputy Assistant Secretary General in NATO, Ambassador at Large for new states, including parts of the former Soviet Union. You served as a NATO Deputy Assistant Secretary for Political Affairs, a director of uh, an $18 billion Iraq Relief and Reconstruction Fund. I mean, (laughs) I could just keep going on. Belarus Ambassador... First of all, you should write a book. Um, And then second of all, I'd like to talk to you about some of your more recent experiences. You just went to um, Iraq uh, not too long ago, first time you've been there in about 12 years. And you you wrote uh, an op-ed piece uh, for The Hill uh, on what you observed, the changes you saw over those past 12 years. Could you talk a little bit about what you saw, what are the differences there, and where does Iraq stand now, and, and what should the U.S. be doing to, to help that nation? Well, I'm glad you raised it. I mean, the reason I wrote that article is because I think there, you know, there is a real fatigue and an understandable fatigue in the United States for places like Iraq. But these challenges don't go away quickly, and they have an effect that are much bigger than just their own countries. So if you see what's going on in the world today, a lot of it can point back to the challenges that we created when we invaded Iraq. The collapse of Syria actually is a result of the war in Iraq, where some of these fighters actually went across the border into Syria and created the problems and uh, created ISIS as a successor, kind of the al-Qaeda dynamic. And that Syria imploding has created essentially 60 million refugees in the world today, uh, or a part of that, uh, that, which is more than any time since World War II. So when you see the problems that are going on in the world, the big challenges in the Middle East, they emanate from some of these public policy challenges that we've had as a country on the international side. What I was trying to get through in that message is you can't, these are long-term challenges that require sustained commitment. It doesn't require sustained commitment at the level, though, that we started out when we had 160,000 troops there, but you also can't just walk away uh, or you're going to end up uh, facing consequences somewhere else. And there is, for me, lots of reasons to be hopeful about a place like Iraq when you see the leaders in these countries actually committing their lives to try to find a a solution to these sectarian divides that divide countries. And so that was that, that point about that uh, particular country. But I, I, I'm hopeful, but I'm scared for Iraq right now as people try to disengage or disconnect, fall back into war, and that that war end up will have consequences for the rest of us. Daniel, you just mentioned that the U.S. can't just walk away from some of these international situations. But in early October, President Trump announced the withdrawal of U.S. troops from northeastern Syria. Those U.S. troops were working with the Kurds who live in that region. They helped the U.S. defeat ISIS. But when the soldiers left, Turkey attacked the Kurds, who they consider their enemy. You do have to understand they've been fighting each other for many, many decades. Actually, for centuries, they've been fighting each other. But we are speaking to both sides, and we're seeing what can be made out of a situation But we have no soldiers in the area, you know. We're getting out of the endless wars, have to do it. We're really serving, and we were serving as a police force. We had defeated ISIS. We defeated the caliphate 100%. 
The Turks reportedly killed almost a thousand civilians and soldiers and wounded hundreds more. Turkey and Russia now control that part of Syria. They're running joint patrols in the area. You know that region very well. You were recently in Turkey. What is your take on this situation? Yeah, well, that was a, a real strategic mistake by the United States. We'll have a long-lasting uh, impact on us because this notion that those who fight alongside you for a common cause, that you will be supportive and not betray them, is kind of one of the basic conditions of good alliances. And so the Kurds were critical in defeating ISIS and did a lot of the heavy fighting alongside the United States and deserve a lot of credit for what they were able to do. And for us to kind of leave them to this humanitarian crisis, to be pushed out and attacked by uh, the Turkish uh, invasion, Syria was is going to have uh, unfortunate consequences. Um, I also think there's a different light to look in this as well, and that is kind of the great powers competition that people are talking about in the sense of the new challenges with uh, rising China and Russia and the stress of the competition with the United States over that. This turned out to be the worst of all worlds in the sense that we kind of handed this to Turkey and then to Russia without getting anything in return. And so as a result of or domestic political considerations or whatever, we have now given Russia major victory uh, in Syria and made ourselves look weak. Uh, and that's not even counting the humanitarian cost, which is the most significant cost for all of this in terms of lost lives and another 200 to 300,000 refugees on the move. So there, there's going to be long-term consequences, unfortunately, for what was uh, a move that a few people find hard to understand. So you are troubled with Russia having more of a foothold in the Middle East than it did before, correct? Yeah, because we don't share uh, the same values and we don't share the same strategic interests. Russia, in large part, is looking to get involved in places where it can check U.S. influence and increase its own global stature. And we are working in these areas usually for a different cause. In the case of Syria, as you recall, it's both the context of uh, stopping the terrorist threat emanating from Syria as well as the um, terrible regime of Assad and what they had done to their own population over the years that the U.S. had been involved in that, that country. And so Russia is more interested in creating strategic national alliances and doesn't really care about the values uh, of the countries that they're dealing with. And I think as the U.S. moves away, if, if we do move away from values as being our fundamental guide in our international affairs, we're going to get ourselves tripped up. And in cases like this, when you hand over the situation, you just end up with the worst humanitarian crisis and still no end in sight to the problems in that particular region and a potential resurgence of ISIS. So what do you think the chances are now that there will be a resurgence of ISIS? Yeah, I think there is a lot of analysts who are writing about the probability that you will see a rise in ISIS again. You won't see them, I think, holding territory the way they did in the past, but you will see probably more activity as a result of this, and people will be pointing back to this point in time where the U.S. just walked away as a reason that we'll probably end up having to get involved again in the region 
in combating ISIS and more American lives will be lost as a result of that kind of fighting. There's also a dynamic here where you may stabilize the situation in Russia and Turkey because of an increased presence may squeeze out ISIS from certain additional areas, as well as some of those people who potentially escaped from the holding cells of the uh, Kurds. They're going to find their way back into Iraq, and Iraq right now is uh, having a lot of uh, internal domestic political challenges and going to be distracted from its ability also to take on an increasing uh, challenge from ISIS. So I fully expect additional ISIS activities as a result of uh, this misguided uh, policy decision. Let's turn now to China, and of course the U.S. trade war with that country continues. Give me your thoughts on that situation. I think the challenge we're having right now is that we you need a policy as you deal with these things, and then you need to be methodical in approaching it, and you need to use diplomacy as the key element of success in that. And what you see happening now is kind of a Wild West six-gun kind of approach to trade policy where we just threaten, threaten, threaten because we're the biggest guy on the block, and then everybody else is supposed to back down. And I think what's happening here is the United States doesn't realize we aren't as powerful as we used to be in terms of the global economy uh, or even in terms of military might, that we can't just dictate the terms that are most favorable to us. And as a result, things keep getting worse rather than getting better. I think there's this sense that at some time the other side will back down. But I think what that misses is this isn't a real estate transaction. We're not buying a building here. It's not just two parties, one on each side looking what's best self-interest, but there is a whole dynamic of of how things play in our domestic politics, both in the United States and in China. And if you don't take that into account, you forget that it's not easy for China to back down or the United States to back down if we draw lines in the sand, because we now have whipped up national sentiment or or, uh, domestic politics. So China can't just give in and not look weak to the United States. So for me, trying to be a little bit more wise in designing results that allow not a zero-sum game, which is, I think, the world that the current administration comes from in real estate, but instead a win-win kind of approach where you're looking at what do both sides need and how can we find solutions is what's really needed in, uh, in our international diplomacy work today. And that dovetails into another question that you brought up as well in, in, in another op-ed piece where you discussed how the United States has kind of relinquished our, our value-based diplomacy. We've kind of abandoned the field there, uh, so to speak. Tell me a little bit more about your feelings on that and, and what we can do to change that. Yeah. I, that to me, that's, I'm really glad you asked because it's probably the thing that I'm most passionate about, which is the United States has to lead through our values. We can't lead just because we have a big economy or we have a big military. Otherwise, we start looking like all the other countries in the world. What's the difference between China and Russia and the United States? Uh, It's that we have these values that respect individual dignity, human rights, and liberties that believe that democracy is the voice of the people that should be the governance of those people. And if we don't live out those values internationally, uh, if instead internationally we just go around trying to tell people what to do, or demand our way, or to worry only about ourselves and not try to share this vision with the rest of the world, we're no better than other countries. And I think we're much better. And I think in terms of our history, in terms of many of these countries, but you convince them 
to become democratic by example, not by cajoling. And I think that's what we've lost right now uh, in the sense that people want to come to the United States, study in the United States, be like the United States because they see the example we set. But if we aren't respecting human rights, if we aren't living and working in a world where we try to carry those democratic principles internationally, if we aren't fighting for the people who are the opposition forces of voices of democracy in these other countries, but are just transaction based, if we're buddies with other authoritarian leaders, because that seems to be our own economic interest, our values get lost in all of this stuff. And in the end, not only will the United States suffer, but the world will suffer because those values, I think, are the way for a future that actually respects people and gives them the prosperity and hope that they are so many, in many places they desire. What, are, what would you say are the driving forces right now in U.S. diplomacy? And how do you think we could move back toward value-based diplomacy of human rights and democracy that you just described? I think the two things that are driving diplomacy and international affairs now in the United States are one, domestic politics. I think we're just pandering to domestic audiences and trying to build wins for uh, party politics on the international front. And second, that it's transactions-based, which I mentioned a little earlier, that it's just we don't have a grand strategy. We don't think how the pieces fit together. We don't think more broadly than uh, you know what we care about over the next few months, that in the end, without a strategic framework for what we're doing and just look at each individual uh, negotiation as an individual transaction, it doesn't fit together and it doesn't end up advancing U.S. interests over the longer time. So for me, I think we got to get back to a more strategic approach, a more values-based approach, and one that in the past, the great thing about international affairs, it was nonpartisan. Uh, the partisanship, they said, ended at our borders. That, I think, has been the, one of the biggest casualties of the last few years. So there are so many difficult challenges that we face around the world. What is the number one that keeps you up at night? I'm going to put them together and to two, and I think they're going to play off on each other. But the first I mentioned a little earlier is this return to a Cold War. It seems almost inevitable the way we're moving in our engagement globally with China and the United States starting to face off uh, politically, economically, and almost in some places militarily, if you look at places like the South China Sea. And uh, China's not going away. And China's not going to be happy to kind of be a second level uh, player in the world. And on top of that, you have Russia, who is wanting to be a global player. But the only way they can do it right now is by being the spoiler. So they go around the world and try to spoil situations and create problems for the United States. So the combination of China and Russia in terms of an opposition to the United States is a really uh, difficult one that's going to create lots of challenges for us in the future, but not just us. The biggest challenge for the Cold War was for the smaller countries. They were the casualties because the proxy wars, the wars don't happen between China and the U.S. They didn't happen between Russia and the U.S., but they were played out in third world uh, at that time, developing countries who ended up having wars with arms being supplied by the major powers. And guess who loses? The very poor people in those countries who can't escape or can't uh, have any influence on this. And the second piece that kind of compounds that is the changing environment. I mean, uh, global warming, climate change is impacting all of us, but it's impacting the poorest countries the worst. And one of the sad things for me working in the international nonprofit area is because there are so many problems with uh, climate change here in the United States, the floods, the earthquakes, the forest fires, and everything else. 
that uh, domestically we're so focused on helping each other, which makes sense. You want to help your neighbors, but there's not a lot of tension left over for the fact that 20 million people are at risk of starving in Yemen or millions in Ethiopia right now, or what's happening with the floods in a place like Bangladesh or India. That For those of us in the nonprofit sector, what used to be a lot of attention and a lot of caring and outpouring for these people who really don't have any other solutions to their challenges and no resources to deal with them, they're left at the end of the line. So I'm worried about this Cold War dynamic plus the environment creating really a terrible nexus people in the world. And these are the people, the values that I took away from Wisconsin say that we can't ignore. That's what civilization means. It means to not let people starve or die of things that can be addressed. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Was it solving these problems that drew you to the leadership role at Lutheran World Relief IMA World Health? It was. You know, I, I spent 29 years in government and public service, had a fantastic career there, enjoyed that. Then spent a few years in business because I know business can also be an impactor in the world for good. But I really was drawn back to the mission kind of approach. And I encourage all your students listening as well to kind of really understand what drives them. And for me, it's being in a mission-oriented organization. And nonprofits are great at that. The really cool thing about nonprofits today is that there is so much room for innovation and change. It's no longer just charity where you're giving away things to help uh, impoverished communities or people. It's about how do you bring together business, governments, private sector actors, foundations, and nonprofits like ourselves. How do you use resources of people in Wisconsin who want to help in the world and put that, leverage that 10 times over to have impact and change in countries around the world by empowering communities? So for me, this is really an innovative time. We're using digital technology for things like mobile payments in the field, to healthcare in a place like Democratic Republic of Congo, to thinking through how technology for farmers in Central America, coffee farmers, to know what the price for their coffee beans here is and when they should sell them. So I'm excited about this period for nonprofits and would encourage either internationally, nationally, at the local level, whatever people get excited about in La Follette School or more broadly in any university uh, student who's listening to us. This, this is a cool time to be in this sector and have a big impact and you can be very innovative. That's really great to hear. And so you must have had many rewarding experiences in your current role. Could you talk about some of these experiences as well as your organization's greatest challenges right now? Yeah, I would say, I'll uh, just give you an example of one that's uh, always touched my heart here is one of my first trips to this job was to Bihar, India. And, you know, India is thought of as this new emerging tech giant in the world and stuff, but they still have a huge challenge with poverty in parts of the country. So Bihar is a, is a, one of the eastern provinces that has 100 million people. And if it was the country, it would be one of the poorest in the world. Uh, half the children are malnourished in that place. And so we were doing projects there. I got to go out and visit them. And what I what really inspired me was the way we were able to help women of communities uh, be able to grow more through their gardens, to be able to feed their families nutritious food, to deal with the malnourishment, but also then to be able to sell some of it on local markets and create self-help savings groups among these women that they could reinforce each other. But what I took away from that is that on international development and relief, I think just like anything, you know, there's this tendency to say we know better. 
but you always end up learning something from others, no matter what their situation or condition is. And when I was so excited with this community, I was visiting of women, I got said, what else can I do for you? You know, you've inspired me. What more can I do for you? And they talked amongst themselves and they came back to me and said, could you help the village down the road like you helped us? And I was just fiberglassed. I thought, you know, what town in Wisconsin, if you said, what more can we do for you? And you were the Gates Foundation, would they say, oh, can you help the community next door? Because they're actually in worse shape than us. And that was, to me, an eye opener of what we need here in the United States as well. We need to get back to this sense of community that goes beyond our own little village, our own little community, our own little town, our own little university, to think of ourselves interconnected and to be grateful for what we have, but also worrying always about the, the neighbor down the road. I think that's the, that's the Wisconsin I grew up in, in rural Wisconsin, that your neighbors are, even if you didn't know them well, you cared uh, deeply if anybody was in trouble. That inspired me in what I do. And I'd say the biggest challenge uh, when you say challenges is the thing that's changed during my lifetime is that humanitarian aid workers are now targets for violence and for politics. It used to be that if you uh, said you were an aid worker, you could go into conflict zones or crime-ridden places or other kinds of places and do good work and help, and people would leave you alone. Now you become a political target, and that has made it very dangerous. It's required a lot more courage of the people who are involved in this and uh, a lot more risk, uh, and that's a really sorry state, and it's required nonprofits like ours. So spend a lot more time and resources on security and figuring out how to do care for our employees. Well, we'd like to thank you so much for all the work that you do and how proud we are in Wisconsin for the impact you've had on the world and you continue to have on the world. And thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and wish you and all your listeners the very best. You've been listening to the Thank You 72 podcast, stories of amazing Badgers from the Wisconsin Alumni Association. For more podcasts, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org.